This is episode 68 of They Think It's All Over, and it's a biggie. That's right, welcome to 68 of They Think It's All Over, the football shirt show. We are mixing things up a little bit this week as we bring to you one of our best features we've ever done. We're so excited to bring it to you. So we'll come back to you next week with the usual kit news, all those new releases, Scotty rants, a bit of kit history. But for now, sit back and listen to who myself, Mike and Scott had a chat with this week. I've got a feeling you're really going to enjoy this one. Today's guest played at the World Cup, Olympic Games, Gold Cup and Copper America. He came up against players like Romario, Hadji, Klinsman, Bebeto, Valderrama and many, many more. He was his first countryman to play in Serie A, scoring against both Milan clubs. He had a glittering career in the MLS, winning it all. Supporters Cup, MLS Cup, CONCACAF Championship. He was in the All-Star team, he's in MLS 11 and he was inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. As a general manager, he was involved in one of the biggest football transfers of all time. If you haven't worked out who he is, then frankly, you can turn off and not come back. We're delighted to introduce the man, the legend, Alexi Lalas. Oh, man, that was awesome. You read it perfectly, just the way I wrote it. Uh, wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys. I hope you can understand my, uh, my accent. Well, we got Scott on the pod. He's Scottish and we can put up with him. So, Oh, my goodness. Well, you look great. Uh, for those that are listening, uh, these guys look great and they got all sorts of stuff uh, going on. So I'm excited to talk about, I call them jerseys over here where I'm from, but we can call them kits or whatever, whatever it is. You know, we, all, we know what we're talking about when it comes to it. And you guys are already, you know, doing me the honor of, of wearing stuff that I have been seen in or been associated with over the years. And like you said, I mean, the the aesthetic of of a soccer team uh, and of a soccer player is very very important. Whether it's the, the you know the uh, the costume that you were wearing, um, you know, it's I, I always looked at it like that. I w- I would go out there on a stage, which is basically a field. I'd go out in front of an audience, which is basically the spectators, and I would wear that costume. And part of that costume is what you guys are uh, are talking about. So it uh, I'm excited to t- to talk about it. I don't think you're as excited as us, but today for you only, we will go jerseys and we'll go soccer. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all right. We know we'll, we'll try at least. About it, you know. <laughs> I, was at a, I was at a FIFA event last night where they announced the, uh, the new brand for 2026. And uh, at one point um, during rehearsals, because I was hosting it, <laughs> the producer said, hey, you need to call it football. And, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't have any diva moments, but I had to put my foot down and I said, no. I'm calling it soccer. That's just the way that it is. And everybody, you know, we'll figure it all out and, uh, and, and we'll move on. So I took it for the team, for the soccer team, if you will, uh, yesterday for FIFA. And, you know, we're getting excited about 2026. I'll be interested to see what, you know, we're going to talk about some of this, what the teams look like and in particular what the U.S. team looks like. Because back in 1994, uh, that iconic jersey that we, that we wore, it's, hard, it's kind of hard for whether it's the U.S. or anybody else out there to live up to that. You know, the, one of the first questions I've got is about that, actually, because I read an article somewhere that when that kit was shown to you guys, particularly the the denim away, that everybody kind of broke down in laughter and thought it could be a bit of a joke. Is that true? What did you think about it the first time you saw it? 
Yeah. So, you know, you know, keep in mind, this was 1994. It was a very different time and place in terms of where American soccer was. And we recognized that 1994 was going to be huge. I mean, look, guys, I'm talking to you today because of 1994. All right. <laughs> it changed my life forever. I lived the power of what it was and everything from the play on the field to the way that our country in the U.S. and then the world gravitated and accepted and celebrated this World Cup being played in, let's be honest, what a, a country that, that traditionally is not a soccer country. It was crazy. And my life has never, has never been the same. When it came to the, you know, the, the jerseys, the uniforms that we were going to wear, I, I vividly remember uh, at that point, the U.S. Soccer Federation, so our, our men's national team, were sponsored by Adidas. And Adidas brought us in. And as is the case, and I'm sure you've had these conversations uh, in your time talking about design and jerseys, what, what they end up doing is they say they want to involve players and they say they want to involve everybody. But the reality is that, that you get too many cooks in the kitchen very, very quickly. And so what they what they did is they brought us in knowing full well that there's nothing they could change. This is it, no matter what. But they wanted to introduce it to us. And there was all kind of this incredibly secretive thing at the at a hotel, if I remember correctly. And they brought us into this room and it was all dark. And then there was this reveal. And you're, you're absolutely right in that. I think a lot of us were were underwhelmed in the sense that we knew that there was already going to be pressure on us playing in a World Cup as the U.S. And I'll never forget our, our coach at the time, Bora Militinovich, said, you know, you guys better play well because they're not going to miss you in these things. I, I looked at it as this is as American as you can get. And I loved that it completely leaned into America because if you're going to don't half ass it. Right. I mean, this is a World Cup being played in the U.S. We're America. We do big, bold, arrogant things. And this said and no, I didn't say it. It screamed America. But that also meant that there's a target. And a focus that's generated that's even more so because of the way you look. But I didn't think it was going to resonate at the time. And it, and it really didn't. I think it was, you know, relative to us playing well and having a successful World Cup, as is often the case, that, that changes perception. But I, I, I definitely didn't anticipate that over the decades to come, how many people would, would come to view it as iconic. And let's be honest, many people that maybe at the time didn't like it it grows on you like a like a fungus. <laughs> and it's the, the funny thing is, it's it's a must have for pretty much any football shirt collector. It doesn't matter which team you support, which nation you are from. This away shirt is an, an absolute must have. And then, and if you'd ask anybody if you could have any player's name on the back, I guarantee you, one hundred percent of the people will say Lalas just because. Oh my god! It was so iconic. <laughs> well, look, long live faux denim, my friends. Uh, you know. And, <laughs> And, you know, the, the whole denim thing, I mean, you can't get any more American than that. And, the, you know, the stars and the stripes and I, I you know, not not to get too big picture, but I, I worry or or I think about going forward here, like like we were talking about what 26 is going to look like for the U.S. team, because I think there's been a tendency, certainly from an American perspective. I don't know if that it resonates around the world to uh, to downplay the connection with your nation to downplay being big and bold and look this this said america and i loved that about it and i love it even more about it right now and maybe because of the era in which we live in right now it it'll be i'll be honest with you it resonates even more so now and i think that you you guys are tapping into some of that yes it's iconic yes there's nothing really like it that we have seen certainly some wonderful uh, you know, over the years, stuff that has happened, whether it's, you know, Nigeria and these types of things. But 
Nothing has come close yet to making such a dramatic statement in the biggest cauldron and biggest fishbowl that is the World Cup. And so, yeah, we went we went balls out for it and it could have gone either way. And luckily in the time and then certainly over the years, it's gone in a much more positive way. I think like you say, one of the things for us, I think as kit nerds, we'd love it anyway. But like you say, like you touched on, I mean, it was a relatively successful World Cup for you as well, wasn't it? So, I mean, that that's, that would be another question just kind of linked into that. How did it feel to be playing that World Cup on home turf? You know, I mean, it must mean a lot to represent your country anyway, but to be doing that at a World Cup as well, how did that feel to be part of something so big? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that as an American soccer player, and certainly those of us that grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was about spreading the gospel, right? And being the evangelist for the sport. And so we recognized that the World Cup and that power that I was talking about, you got to be able to harness that. And so when it came off that it was a successful World Cup, we got out of the group, we made you know big headlines, stars were created, all that kind of stuff. I think it was, you know, the fulfillment of a goal for a lot of people and not just the players on the field, but everybody that was kind of working to this. And obviously we parlayed that into Major League Soccer, all of those different things, you know, they, they contributed to the pushing of this boulder up the, uh, up the hill. And it still is hard today, but it's gotten a lot easier. And a lot of people, I still walk down the street today and people will talk about 94 and what a moment it was and a turning point, a seminal moment. And it changed the way that they think about the game. It also changed the way that they think about the game in their own country. And I look at it kind of as a birth and a moment uh, and that flagpole that so many people point to when everything changed on and off the field. So it was it was a pretty cool summer. Very cool. And like you say, it's changed your life. And we'll come back to America in a minute but we can drop the football. We can drop the soccer chat. It was couch show next for you. So yeah. the adjustment to go from what was college soccer, playing a world cup against full-time professional athletes to then becoming the first American to go over and play Serie A football. How did that move come about? What was the adjustment like? It must've been huge. Yeah. So it came about because of the world cup. Uh, you know, what a lot of people sometimes fail to realize is, you know, guys like myself and Kobe Jones, when we stepped on the field in the summer of 94 for the World Cup, we had never been on the books of a club. And so we had never been in a club type of situation. And even the last two years, as we trained getting ready for the 94 World Cup, we were actually playing together in residency uh, as a national team. That was our club. And so after the World Cup, you play well, the world sees you, you gain credibility. You know, I had to star in a World Cup in order to get an opportunity to go overseas. There's American kids now that don't even play a single game in MLS that are now getting opportunities. I'm not bitter about it. It's great. It means that, <laughs> that progress has happened, but you shouldn't have to star in a World Cup to get an opportunity to play at a club situation. But the offers came in after the World Cup. So there was three of them, one to uh, the EPL, uh, one to the Bundesliga and one to Serie A. And keep in mind to your viewers and listeners this was a very different moment back in the early 90s. This was before the Bosman ruling. This was before the opening of the European community. Everybody was going to Italy. That was anybody. It was the most money. It was the most prestige. Stars all over the place. Keep in mind that only three foreigners could play at a time. So it was very, very select as to what was happening. And I'll be honest, I went and I visited England and I visited Germany. There was only one place I was going. You know, if I'm going to do it again, I'm going to go go big or go home. And so to go to Serie A at that moment and to play against the best players in the world week after week, Sunday after Sunday, get my ass kicked. 
but also to have it, to, you know, to be kind of historic, being the first American to do that. And my first time doing the day in and day out types of things and living that existence. Yeah, there was, there, like I said, there was only one place that I was going. Unbelievable. Let's like, say testing yourself as well. I mean, yeah. you, you summed it up. Syria back then was just the biggest league in the world. And to go from college football training full time yeah. the men's US national team for two years to taking the pitch in Syria against some of those opponents, who were some of the toughest opponents that you faced? So that was back during the, uh, you know, the Milan days of uh, Hulet and these types of players. That was back when people played with two forwards and two strikers, uh, you know, so you would be like Balbo Fonseca, Pepe Signori and these types of things and Fiali and Ravanelli and these types of, of, of players up top or Batistuta at Fiorentina. And every single team had some national star. And usually they spent a lot of the money on the goal scorers. And so every single Sunday, you know, I was playing for Padova. Padova, for, for those that don't know, it was a small city, University City, right outside of Venice in the north of, uh, in the north of Italy. They had just come up into Syria for the first time. So, you know, myself, along with a couple of other players, were like their big signings to try to stay in Syria. But it also meant that staying in Syria, that was the goal, just to avoid relegation. That would have been a success. And so we were coming in, and as a center back, so now I'm faced with every single Sunday playing against, you know, the best strikers in the world. At times it went well and at times it didn't, but I learned uh, immediately. And, you know, I had said that I hadn't been on the books. The day in and day out existence of playing for a club and living in that same community. And by the way, in the fishbowl that is uh, soccer over there, uh, there's two things that happen on Sunday, soccer and, and uh, church, right? And it's no coincidence. And every result to impact your next six days, when you go to the supermarket, when you go to the bank, when you're driving down the street, when you go to the, you know, the bar or whatever, it's all part of everything that you're doing. That was completely foreign to me because I didn't grow up in that type of culture. And I certainly hadn't played yet in a situation. So I had to, I had to once again, adjust and the Italians hadn't seen anything kind of like me and the way I looked and the way that I acted and the music and all, all that kind of stuff was there. They were a little curious. And I, I like to think at times I, I won them over, but I was very different than the traditional American giocatore, you know? They did take you. You did keep them up. That run after Christmas, I mean, like I say, you scored the two goals against Milan. You know, you beat Napoli, Lazio, Juventus, Inter, Torino. You got a draw against Roma. I mean, the, the form the second half of the season went down to the wire, went down to the final day, went down to a playoff, but it was mission accomplished. I mean, I can't believe you know all this stuff. I, I mean, it was this was before the internet or, you know, the, the way that we think about the internet now and certainly before social media. And so, yeah, it was, you, gotta, you just got to stay up and do whatever you possibly can. And we knew there were games where we were up against it and those were not points that we needed to win. We knew there were others and we would take different things. But, you know, in your first year, in Serie A, as, the, as, as an American there, as a center back, to score against AC Milan, for example, and to beat AC Milan, that was huge. And the interesting thing was, because Padova had never been up to Serie A, all of the community, they had their Serie A affiliation, and then they had their Serie B, Serie C affiliation. So they were almost torn because in Padova, it was all about AC Milan. That's who their, their team was. And so now... Their own city is up in Syria, and the team that many of them have been following their entire lives from a Syria perspective in, in AC Milan was now coming to play. And so they were they were torn in this moment. And so not only to win, but also to beat AC Milan in Padova, that was a cool thing. And so, you know, goals are always cool, but that moment at the end of the season 
when we actually went to a you call it a spareggio, a, a a playoff basically, and you know us us against uh, against Genoa, and and you know it was to stay up, the winner take all, and we ended up uh, winning in penalties, and we were able to stay up, and there was a big party and all that kind of stuff and so when when people talk to me about promotion relegation i say hey man i've lived it i know exactly what it's all about <laughs> i understand the emotion i understand the romance i understand all of that when it comes to what it what it was and really to have that 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 connection and that affiliation and that affinity for a, a city i took my kids back and my family back a couple of years ago and it was the first time i had been back in decades and uh it was really really cool and they were wonderful and they opened you know, the city and, and open arms. It was just really, really cool. And even though I only spent, you know, two, two years there, it lives uh, a place of Padova and Italy for that matter still lives in my heart. I can imagine. So listen, this is going to be the last question I promise about Syria and Calcio because these boys are going to want to jump in. What was it like from a, from a Jersey uniform perspective? What stood out to you? Cause you had your Diodoras, your all sports, your lottos, all brands, I guess you might not have even come across before. Right. Yeah, so I think in the we changed from year one to year two. It was Diodora to Lotto or Lotto to Diodora. So also what I think changed was, and this is, you know, geeking out or whatever. I think at the, the first year I was there, we did not have names on the back of the jerseys. And then the second year, I think we actually did have names on the back of the jerseys. And keep in mind that, you know, the world of, of soccer was changing then. You know, we had we had implemented the no back pass rule a few years before. So it was all kind of changing and the whole entertainment aspect of it was was changing going forward. You know, I, I loved, and you know, you can see it. I love a collar. I love a collar on a jersey. It just, I think it it makes it, I think it just makes it cooler. And so I loved the fact that I was playing on a team that, you know, that had collars and all that. And, you know, the Italians, they're certainly known for their fashion and their style. And that translates into what they do on the field. And it might be a shitty team, but they can look great, and they often do. I remember getting fitted for my my suit, my pot of a suit, when I first got there, and they were so appalled that I was going to wear like Doc Martin boots with it. It was just such a <laughs> an affront to their sense of fashion and decency. But it was wonderful. We had tailor made suits, and so the fashion part of it was awesome. And I'll I'll never forget how much maintenance went on with these guys, like the. Even pregame, the, the the blowing of the hair and stuff like that, and nothing was out of place. And the way that they looked was really, really important. And the way that the uh, you know the way that the jerseys fit them, and the way that their shorts fit them, and the way where how they wore their socks at which point. So there was a real attention to detail, and there was a real attention to the aesthetic of what they were uh, what they were going for, whether it was you're wearing your homes uh, or you're away. What I'm going to do is I'm going to drag you back away from Italy. Otherwise, Adrian will keep you there okay. all day. So obviously, once you left there, you went home, basically. A few people might know that there was obviously a year's delay in the start of the MLS. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you, you ended up back in MLS for the inaugural season at the Revs. My first question is the early MLS has got this reputation as kind of like the wild west of football. There was There was a little bit of madness about it. There were the crazy kits. There was the the ridiculous stadiums, you know, 100,000 stadiums that were, were being filled and the penalty shootouts, we'll get onto them. That, that's a whole conversation itself. But was it exactly like we kind of see it now? Or is that just kind of like a little bit of revisionism? Do we kind of look at it like that just because there were those few wildcard moments? Well, first off, it was the 90s. And, as you know, I think there was a, not just a willingness, but a desire 
to do things differently. And, you know, the, the fashions of the day, whether they came from music or, you know, entertainment and big, it was big colors. Obviously, it was literally big things. I look back when I post something from back in the day inevitably uh, the responses are how the hell did you run around in this trash bag <laughs> type of size? <laughs> and especially when it, when it went the complete opposite way and everybody was shrink fitted uh, in stuff like that. So that was absolutely something that was going on. There were huge colors. There were huge sizes that people wore and being big and bold and grand and over the top that wasn't something to be embarrassed about. That was something that you actually wanted to do because you wanted to set yourself apart. Uh, that's the same appearance that I was at last night, Jorge Campos, who is obviously famous for his goalkeeping garb. He was ahead of the time, right? I mean, he, he recognized that this, and so this was right up his alley. So when I think about MLS and that introduction where they introduced all the teams and obviously the colors and the brands and stuff like that, from today's standards, because I think that there has been a desire to become much more traditional and there's good and bad with that but i think what we've lost in in doing that is some of the outside you know out, out of the box types of thinking and, and to be quite honest some of the courage to do some things that you know you might get criticized for but if you believe in them and they are setting you apart there's a lot of crap out there and you got to make yourself different and sometimes the way to do that is the way that you look i mean you're talking to me i knew that my aesthetic as a player was that costume and could attract people and could change perception. And that I, if I harnessed that, I could use it to my, uh, to my advantage. So all of the different uh, MLS jerseys, and there were, there were a lot of them. I love them. And, and we, we've gotten very far away from that, which actually opens up an opportunity for someone either in the international stage or on the domestic stage to do some big things. And the things that people get excited about now that I see when a, when a new jersey comes out, that was happening every year and, and, and in every way uh, during the 90s. So maybe it was just a, a relative to the, uh, the age that we were living in. I don't think it's a coincidence that for us, sort of like as, as kit collectors, that those 90s MLS are held in as high regard as, as any shirts. I mean, me, myself, I, I specifically hunt down the, the Kansas City Wizard shirts. I, I think they're incredible. They're Obviously, the best MLS shirts of all time. Oh my god! But, yeah, <laughs> but obviously that that was a question I had for you as well, actually. So, I mean, given all of the amazing kits, not not even just the ones that you wore, because the Reebok, I think it was Reebok you wore at Revs, that was yeah. you know an incredible kit. Was it ninety nine? You wears two yeah. of my favorite shirts ever, and then obviously you wore some of the most iconic shirts that the Galaxy have ever had as well. So. If you had to pick a favorite of those MLS shirts, even even if it's not one you wore, did, did you have one that sticks in your mind as your favorite? I mean, I love the the Rainbow Warrior type of uh, vibe that we got at Kansas City. And, you know, we, we had a, a bunch of different ones, but they all had that rainbow motif that was going on. And they look, you know, at times in in, in present day eyes, just crazy and bizarre but i i loved that you mentioned the revolution that was again kind of the americana flag type of thing and also to your point the interesting thing was when mls first started uh, they they spread around the uh the designers right so like you said up uh, the revs were um uh were reebok and there was nike and there was adidas and it went on and on uh with different people as opposed to now where it's all adidas and so that lends itself to being a little bit more uniform and kind of having shells. And so 
yeah, it was Wild West in terms of on the field, what was going on <laughs> uh, and off the field, because you were just trying to break through and make uh, make a name for yourself or to gain some sort of uh, uh, acknowledgement about what was going on. And some of the ways that they that we did that were through what we looked like. Yeah. So, you know, the revs were, were really, really cool. And obviously being the first time they they've become kind of iconic. Uh, I went down to play for the Metro stars uh, and they had some really cool jerseys. And then, like you said, the rainbows out there and then coming out to, uh, to the galaxy. But I, I, even though I only spent a year in Kansas city, we were, we were a bunch of rainbow stuff. We even at one point, <laughs> there was like a, a mesh seventies type of thing that we were, uh, that we were doing now comfort was not necessarily first and foremost in terms of the design. I mean, some of these, I, I pick them out of my closet now because I don't have a lot, but I have some. The weight to some of these is just ridiculous. The, the material that was being used. So it's one thing that it's it's three sizes too big because that was the style back then. But then God forbid it rained and you, know, you were carrying an extra 15 pounds running around. So f- fashion over function sometimes those mesh ones i've got the um the 97 and 98 away in the mesh version and i absolutely love them they're probably my favorite football shirts jerseys and we did promise we'd call them jerseys that i am you've got to be careful even what you wear with them because they're they're basically see-through as well so if if you wander out into the street without something on underneath you're giving everybody a little bit of a view and what's going on under there as well yes indeed yeah it's 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 incredible when i when i think back of of the designs and and even the names you know like the dallas burn and the kansas city Wiz, then the wizards and and all that and again we were thinking about the game relative to all the competition that we have with other sports and a brand new league trying to cut through all of that kind of stuff so you can understand why that was done the interesting juxtaposition sometimes is to see for example dc united went a very different way they were much more traditional and they used kind of the international aspect even in their name dc united and that the way that they looked from their crest to their their uniforms it was much more traditional when we say traditional usually it revolves around you know history relative to uh relative to europe but they went a completely different way and actually the rest of the league has kind of gone that gone that way but i don't regret for a second some of the what now would be considered crazy or wacky things that were done either off the field uh, or on the field in terms of the way that we looked, or even you mentioned shootouts and 35 yard kicks and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Which uh, I've we, got to say, I'm an advocate for those, by the way, they need to be brought back. But right. Anyway. I mean, yeah, does anybody absolutely. remember, does anybody remember fun or laughter? I mean, they were cool. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't you have goalkeeper wars as well? Wasn't that in the MLS where we, the goal? We had it in the, in the all-star games and stuff like uh, that. So we would right. do all-star games and they'd have goalkeeper wars and uh, you know, how, who kicks the ball the hardest, you know, with radar, our guns and all, all that kind of stuff we were doing we were doing anything and, and everything just to gain some sort of traction and attention out there and, and and again i don't i don't and nor should anybody apologize for it because you're dealing with a very different type of culture obviously that you um that you're coming up against and lots of com- uh, competition not just sports competition but just entertainment dollar but it was like it was mirroring because they do that with uh the basketball and the football when they do the the all-star stuff too doing they? they have all these kind of like the dunk contest and yep. you used to have the quarterback wars it was it was just a good day out wasn't it everybody comes and these yeah. kind of unique things i loved it and you and you can see some of these players in a very different light and you know sometimes it's hard to to qualify or quantify 
what they are doing in a, in, a, in a traditional game setting. And so when you see, I don't know, how hard they can kick something or the actual movement that's required or, you know, even doing things because we only see them in the game, right? But it, whether it's juggling the ball or, or, or dexterity and skills contests, all of those different things, I think they're really, really cool. And people, people dig them in terms of watching them. And it, I think it provides a different look into a lot of these players that we know a lot about, but we sometimes don't know everything. And purely from a competitive standpoint, seeing them do some of these things in a different type of setting can, I think, only add and enhance their image and, and, and have a greater appreciation for the athletes that they are. Before Scott you, have comes in. you got in, one more, Mike? Yeah. yeah, I have. Oh, I have one, Scott. One, one last question before Scott comes in with some Galaxy Beckham okay. questions. I, not a lot of people know, but you you spent a brief time in Ecuador at Emelec as well. Yeah. So what, yeah. I got to ask what that was like, because obviously the, the sort of like Central American football culture is insane. Was, was yeah. it as intense as, as anybody would expect it to be playing for a club like that? Yeah, it was it was insane. So uh, this would have been ninety seven ish, I would think. And if, as for people that know, MLS plays it uh, on an off type of season schedule. And so wait, I come to the end of my season, and I still had the World Cup, the ninety eight World Cup, to be preparing for. And so there was this period of time where I wasn't going to be playing MLS. And my agent called me up and said, hey, "Listen." Emelec down there in Ecuador would like you for a short-term type of loan. And, and they were like, and it's, you're going to get paid in dollars and it's direct deposit. And I was like, all right, where do I go? Let's do it. <laughs> I got on a plane, man. I headed down to Ecuador. I had been down for Copa America in 93. That was the only time, but I went down there and uh, I flew in uh, to, I think I flew into Quito. And then from Quito, I went to Guayaquil, which is where Ecuador plays. And um, I'll tell you a real quick story about Ecuador, how crazy and talk about Wild West it was. I get there, I go in and I immediately meet the um, the owner of the team. And he takes my agent, takes him out of the room and closes the door. And it's just me and him. And he sits me down and he proceeds to lecture me on the ills of America and the problems with democracy um, and the problems with capitalism and then proceeds to go on a long, lengthy tirade slash speech about extolling the virtues of communism and socialism. And, and then at the end of it, after he finished, he reached into his desk and I'm already flipping out. Right. He reached. So I know what's going to happen. <laughs> he pulls out a box and he places it in front of me and opens it up as if he was proposing to me. <laughs> and he gave me a, a Che Guevara watch and made sure that I put it on. <laughs> <laughs> I still have this watch. I still have this watch. And then we, we went and we got in a plane because this was in Quito, I think, that I was meeting. And we got in a plane and we flew an hour and a half at about a thousand feet over the jungle or whatever it was there in this little teeny plane. We touched down in Guayaquil, uh, Ecuador. It was the hottest place that I have to, to date ever been in my life. It was during El Nino. I have never experienced heat uh, and humidity, the way that I saw that. I mean, they would have torrential rains that would come in. It was insane. That same president, by the way, I got thrown out of the first game. I got a red card in the first game that I played for using the only Spanish that I really knew, which was swearing <laughs> at the referee. And they, 
they didn't have the same sensibilities that referees in North, in North America had in terms of the jarring and the back and forth. So I got thrown out of the game. He comes bombing into the referee locker room after the game, demanding that they take away the red card, which, which by the way, and, and his argument was he's American. Like, like that's ever going to fly. <laughs> oh, it was just complete insanity. Uh, but, but like I said, uh, the money cleared, it was wired, and it was deposited all in dollars in my American bank. So it was cool. I had a really good time. Uh, Ecuador down there, they're basically Barcelona and uh, Emelec are the big teams over there and Quito, Liga de Quito uh, to a certain extent. And Guayaquil is, you know, sea level. And then you go to Quito, which is at incredible altitude. So it's a beautiful country, wonderful people and crazy soccer uh, down there. So it was cool. The other thing was, I'll give you one more thing. If you got two seconds, they would train for, I kid you not, like three and a half hours every day. And at one point I went to the, I went to the coach and then I said, what the hell are we doing? He said, it's so hot that we're not really doing a whole lot. It just takes us a long time to actually do stuff. Then the game was on Sunday, and on Tuesday, they put us into what they call concentration, where you're staying in, uh, in rooms, and the rooms are actually in the stadium that you're playing in, and they don't let you out. And I went and yeah. talked to the coach. I said, what the hell is going on here? He goes, listen, Alexi, I trust you. I don't trust any of my players. If I let them go do whatever the hell they want during the week, they're going to go do bad things. So we have to literally keep them in the stadium in concentration the entire week to get the most out of them on the weekend. I said, all right, whatever. As long as you're paying me in dollars, and it's <laughs> one direct deposit. I've been uh, warned prior. I know Adrian likes to talk about Syria, but I like to talk about Beckham quite a lot. And just, sure. just for the, the context of my, um, my fandom of David Beckham. I have every single shirt that he wore in his entire playing career, all with the name set on the back, all the way from his Manchester United debut in 92 to the PSG. I've got all the Galaxy shirts. And, it, and I've always been a Galaxy fan. You, as a Galaxy, I would say, just a person, not even a player, you know, you, you, you had the... We'll get to the Beckham bit first, but starting at your playing career, I mean, you literally won everything you could win. You know, you had the, the CONCACAF Champions Cup, their yeah. first of MLS Cup, the Open Cup, the Supporter Shield. I mean, did you know at the time how big a deal? I mean, because that's the, you know, there's still many, many MLS teams that have been nowhere near um, the, the record you had. You played there for two seasons, you know, yourself, Kobe Jones, yeah. and Kevin Hartman. You know, did you realize at the time what a big deal it was? I realized it was an incredible relief, I'll be honest with you, because the, my time in MLS. While I had a great time, uh, I played for teams that weren't very good. And so I had never even come close to winning anything. And any player wants to at least at some point be at a place where you have a chance to win. And so once I once I actually took a, a year off, I took a sabbatical and I, uh, I chased a girl. There's always a girl involved in these stories. So I, chased, <laughs> I chased a girl that then became my wife. And I ended up in L.A. where she was living. And so after taking a year off, I said, I want to keep playing. And since I was in L.A., I called up the coach and we did a deal. Anyway, so I, I started playing for the Galaxy and it was the, absolutely the best team that I had been in, in my in my MLS career. And, you know, some of the players that you mentioned, you know, you know Kobe Jones and Kevin Hartman in goal at, at a certain point, Carlos, uh, Carlos Ruiz, who scored a bunch of goals. And so for me, winning those things, it wasn't 
it wasn't a sense of accomplishment. It was a, a, a sense of, of relief. I'll be really honest with you. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. That's done. Um, and I'm never going to regret or, you know, rue something like that. And I had a blast in, uh, in Los Angeles. And like you said, it was just really good players. It's a really, really good team. And ultimately to finish your career, on a high note like that, winning all of those different things and whether it was the domestic uh, things that we won um, or even in that point, winning the, uh, the international things that we won, it was, you know, it's pretty cool. And that you were the first, that's also a, a cool thing. There's a lot of firsts that I've been around and, and a lot of that's just when you were born, but it's still look pretty cool to look back and say, yeah, I was part of the team, uh, the first galaxy team ever to win MLS cup, or I was part of the first group of players ever to play in major league soccer. I'll never forget when that whistle blew, we were playing down in Tampa with the Re new revolution. When that whistle blew, I said, I just lived a period of history. I was at least, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm not a complete moron, but in that moment, I knew at least, <laughs> Hey, this is something special and it's only gotten more special as we've gone forward. But my time in LA uh, on the field was incredible. And then as if that wasn't enough, you then became a part of if people say, arguably for me, it is without a doubt not only the biggest transfer in MLS history, but potentially one of the biggest transfers in the world for, for what it meant. And I was just curious. So you were the GM from 2006 to 2008. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious what your personal involvement in terms of where you involved in the decision, I want David Beckham. And when it was decided that you guys wanted him, where were you in, in terms of negotiations and actually getting the deal done? Well, listen, you, you don't have to pay someone to tell you that they that you should sign David Beckham. <laughs> I mean, if I had said, eh, it's okay, you know, we, I think we can do better. No, look, um, when I say we, I mean the Anschutz Entertainment Group. So Phil Anschutz uh, is the owner of uh, and was the owner at that time also of the Los Angeles Galaxy. And Tim Laiwicki was basically running the show for the Anschutz Entertainment Group. And Sean Hunter was his second in command. And we always talked about doing something big and bold. And Tim Laiwicki had fostered a relationship with David Beckham uh, years prior, you know, having camps and stuff like that. And David would do some camps here in L.A. And there was always the, you know, the planting of the seed that this could possibly happen. So you needed somebody with vision. And that's what Tim Laiwicki had. He said, listen, we're going to do something big and bold and something that's never been done. That's not only going to change the brand of the galaxy, but it's going to change Major League Soccer. You also need someone to therefore then go actually implement it because the rules at the time wouldn't allow you to do something. And the designated player rule that we have now started with David Beckham. And that's where Sean Hunter came in. And he fundamentally changed the way that we do business uh, in Major League Soccer that enabled the Galaxy to be able, uh, be able to do this. I'll never forget, you know, going over and meeting with David. At that point, he was playing at Real Madrid. Speaking of jerseys, I, I don't have a lot, but I have one of, one of his that he gave me after the game. It's still sweat on and, and dirt, uh, dirt on it. And so I think he got thrown out of the game, actually. But anyway... Um, First, I needed to hear why this was something that he would consider. And I also, I think he needed to hear from us as to what we were going to do. And, and look, we paid him a boatload of money. And that's the surest way to get someone to do something. But I think he recognized that this was a new frontier for him. This was something different. And to your point, that this was going to be groundbreaking. And this was going to be historic. And from our perspective, you know, me as the president, it's a no brainer because it fundamentally changes our business in one fell swoop. And, and it has there, you know, people still, when they think about major league soccer, they think about the Los Angeles galaxy because of its association with David Beckham. We weren't just signing one of the great 
players in the world. We were signing one of the most famous people in the world. And by the way, all of it comes with that because there were there was a lot of collateral damage over that that hurricane that came in as the galaxy, even though we were an elite team, we had never dealt with something like that. That whole machine that is David Beckham and everybody that uh, that functions around doing what's best for David Beckham, as opposed at times to doing what's best for the actual club. You had to deal with all of that and that type of dynamic, you know, speaking of collateral damage, then a few years later, you know, I got fired. Others got others got fired because it's it's understandable. But I look back and we made some mistakes along the way. Um, we rebranded midseason to coincide with the arrival of David Beckham. Still one of the proudest moments of my of my career was doing that. And the men and women that worked hard, not just hard every single day to welcome him in to maximize the opportunity that is David Beck. I mean, literally from a financial perspective to do that, which we were awesome at. Uh, and then, you know, the integration in on the field, that took a whole lot, that took a whole lot longer. But yeah, like I said, it was a no brainer. You know, as you said, it was the, the, the absolute hurricane that came through. Bearing in mind, you know, you were a, a, a still a, a relatively... Uh, new league in terms of finances. Yep. You had, you know, college graduates coming in on some of them on twenty six thousand dollars a year, and then you had Beckham. What it was reported, he was on, you know, eighteen thousand a minute or whatever the ludicrous sum was. How how difficult was your job as a GM? Haven't you know you you'd done Serie A and stuff, so you'd seen how the bigger players had been treated. How difficult was your job to get all of that integrated and still concentrate on having an actual fo- functioning football team? I mean, the biggest challenge, honestly, was, uh, and if I had to do it over again, look, we all make mistakes. And, and you know, to your point, I was in my mid-30s at that time. And while I had been up at San Jose as the president of the San Jose Earthquakes, and then with the Metro Stars that then became the Red Bulls, and then I had come back to the Galaxy, I was still relatively young. And, you know, I didn't have incredible experience, but I had some experience, but nobody had experience dealing with that, like I said, that that hurricane that comes in. And so my biggest challenge and when i look back on it the thing that i probably couldn't have done it at the time but you 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 want to do what's right for your club but your club is basically david beckham and doing what's right for your club has to be paramount and at times it ha- it will run counter to what and i'm just using david beckham but it could be it could be others and so that power balance or that power imbalance it took a while for that to balance out. And like I said, there was, you know, uh, those of us that got fired along the way, but I think it was kind of a, while difficult and painful, a natural type of progression and something that needed to happen to get to that, uh, to get to that other side. So ultimately to, to answer your question, I look back fondly with, uh, with everything that was done and in, with incredible pride, but I completely recognize that at times it became about David Beckham as opposed to uh, the galaxy and what was good for the galaxy. And, you know, he, that contract that he signed, look, we, we would do it again because we got incredible benefit out of so did he. And whether it was the money that we were actually paying him, whether it was a piece of the pie when it came to, you know, stuff that we were selling and merchandise and all that. And then the biggest part that, that people either realize now or and at the time maybe didn't realize was the ability to be an owner and to have uh, the ability to buy an expansion team at a, I mean, today they just announced the San Diego team and it's a $500 million expansion fee. Okay. You could have had, David had like a $25 million 
fee written in. It ended up being a little bit more. And even in the early aughts, you could have bought an MLS team for $10 million. So it's, I mean, it's an incredible piece of business that his team did, but dealing with that team and dealing with that, that Beckham machine on a day-to-day basis, man, that is exhausting. I can imagine. I um, actually lived in Florida um, from 2011 till 2016. So I kind of came in at the tail end of his, his MLS career, but you could just, you could just see the mayhem that was going around it. And just to bring it quickly back to shirts, you mentioned about Mm -hmm. the rebrand. What was the, what was the thought process and how did it come about? Because as you said, they completely changed, you know, the, the, the shirt I have hanging behind me that, you went from the, the black, green, kind of yellowy style shirts to all of a sudden, I remember a paper quote in there that it was the, the American Real Madrid. Yeah. <laughs> Alexi, you're about to do Scott a big favour here because for a few years, he has basically said, this is a fact. This is absolutely what happened. And then all of a sudden, we knew we were speaking to you and he went, oh, I better check if this story's real or not. I get to find <laughs> okay. out if a story's real. And we're like, Hang on. <laughs> No problem. No problem. We can, we can definitely do that. Um, okay. So the whole thing with the rebrand, it was part. And when I say part, I mean, contractually part of something that we were going to do. Now we were all on board because you're going to sign David Beckham, you know, make it as big as you possibly can. And nothing is, nothing says change more than a rebrand. You know, this is where, you know, the, the partnership, if you will, with David Beckham. When I say David Beckham, sometimes we're talking about the individual. I'm talking about the entire machine and all the people that, that are working for him, including his wife, by the way. They had input in everything that we were going to do. I spent most of my time when I was at the Galaxy dealing with this at, at, around this time, dealing with the rebrand. And that's why I remain to this day incredibly proud of what was produced. But it was a lot of back and forth and it was a lot of push and pull. And I loved that when we finally came up and we, you know, we were working uh, with people on the outside when we finally came up with it, it was something that, that everybody was happy with and everybody was proud of now, absolutely to your point, they wanted it real Madrid esque. And that's why it's very clean. It's very simple. Um, but it's, but it's, uh, for lack of a better word, it's, it's very classy. It's, it's certainly not the 90s types of, of jerseys that we were talking about earlier. There's nothing over the top. There's nothing garish about it. And ultimately, it was designed to make David Beckham look good. And, and look, he's, he's already a good looking guy. <laughs> and, and so he was kind of the model because he is going, I mean, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in this. So you want to put your best foot forward. And he had an interest in putting his best foot forward. And so whatever this aesthetic was going to be, we wanted him to be comfortable with it. And we wanted to be comfortable with it. And I think ultimately everybody was happy. So I have a, I have a picture of the progression of what what ended up being called the quasar, which is the the logo on the uh, on the shirt, and I'm not giving away any trade secrets or anything like that. It's just it, it kind of shows you the progression that we had, and I mean the the months and months of preparation. And then, by the way, it's one thing to do a rebrand; it's another thing to do a rebrand mid season. <laughs> so, you know, one minute you're wearing the you know the uh, the brand and the aesthetic that's been established since 1996 
and then boom, it's changed and you're completely new at all the branding, whether it's what people are on the field, all around the stadium, what you're selling, it has to be there and it has to be on. And so not only did I have to like it, then I had to get approval and I had to get approval from my bosses and I had to get approval from the David Beckham side and I had to get all of this, all of this approval. And it was okay. Cause it ended up making me think about things differently at times or giving me time to think about things differently. And it ended up being vetted by multiple people. It, it risked at times being too many cooks in the kitchen, but you know, this is, this was the way that it was going to have to happen. And ultimately it did. And I think we came in and ultimately found a really kind of traditional way of updating the, uh, the, the logo. And then obviously the, uh, the colors and the aesthetic and, we knew it was going to be iconic because your friend David Beckham's wearing it. So everybody's going to be oh, wearing yeah. it. And I'll never forget going around the world. And I remember being in China and seeing people wear it. I don't know if they were real or if they were knockoffs or anything, but still, again, <laughs> we, we wanted to be relevant and we wanted that brand to resonate, not just domestically, not just in Los <laughs> Angeles, but globally. And it did. And, you know, the Herbalife across the, uh, across the front with the partnership that we had with Herbalife, they got they got plenty out of it. We got plenty out of it. And certainly David got plenty out of it. It's amazing to have been involved in that because, as you said, first ever MLS player on the on a Sports Illustrated cover. And at the time, it was the most sold jersey in the history of soccer jersey worldwide at the time. Obviously, it's been beaten now with production and increase and stuff. But at the time, and not only that, but this is just a little bit of a sidestep. But I live in a town called Lerwick in Scotland, and it's a big fishing port. And the, the registration for the fishing boats is LK. And we started up a Sunday league team and I was in charge of the branding and we called it the LK Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon they can come after you for that, Scott. That, that branding's a little bit, well, you know, we talk about no, shiny shirts. There'll, there'll, be, there'll be no photos sent of that one. Oh, so my, well, so you, my, well, you can see, you can see in the progression how, you know, things change and I love, and some of this stuff nobody cares about i mean i know you guys do because you're, you're you're into it but i mean even the 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 a that had the little slice through the a and these types of things and you know nerds like us we get into it and i i really got into it. this was i had uh, i had gone up to san jose like i said i was the president and the team move, was moving so i had to deal with all that craziness then i had gone to new york and the team got sold i had to deal with that and then I came back and dealt with the David Beckham thing, but also the rebrand. And this was my first foray into a rebrand and talk about trial by error uh, and by fire. And so every little thing, and when it comes out, people just kind of look at it and, you know, people are going to dump on it no matter what and say this and this and that, but it was pretty well liked when it came out. And, and when I say well liked, it's like, yeah, it's pretty good that, you know, and we'll take that as you guys know, sometimes these come out and people are like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. This is just clip art. My kid could have done a better job. You see all that kind of stuff, but all of the work and the time and the energy and the sweat that went into, you know, what the, what the quasar was going to look like, how, how far it was going to shine or, you know, the curve of that galaxy thing that you have on your Jersey, you know, what was, what was the arc going to be and where was it going to stop? And was it going to go past the boundaries? All of these little things are what you guys celebrate, right? I mean, it's, yeah. there's the, in totality, obviously what it looks like, 
But then there's all the little things that make it make it wonderful. I guess, you know, from a music perspective that I'm always in, you know, there's the album that you can celebrate. But then you go into all the little songs and then you go all into the, the minutia within the songs. And that's where a lot of the good stuff ultimately uh, ultimately is. But it's also, like you said, nerdy. But, I, you know, I love to nerd out about this stuff. So I have one last question and sure. then I'm being told to be quiet. But, all right. So you... You're, you were one of my favorite pundits when I was watching the ESPN and things when I lived in America. And I'm sure other people would agree. But your reputation for always being honest, you know, you, you don't shy around the truth and you, you say what you're thinking. And I think it, it's very endearing to a lot of people. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But I, I read an article um, about your, when you finished with the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And the article said that the, there was a, a press release and it had said that you had decided, you know, you'd mutually agreed to part ways with the galaxy. And apparently yeah. you called them up and said, why have you said that? I got fired. Tell the yeah. truth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know you guys got a lot of different words over there for, I mean, you know, the sacking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just like, you know, who, who are we fooling here? Nobody, everybody knows what's going on, you know? And look, I don't recommend people getting fired. It's not something that you should do, but eventually if you do this long enough, you're going to get fired and it's not the worst thing in the world. And, you know, a door closes and another one can open up because of that. Again, I don't want you to go out and try to try to get fired. <laughs> but I also, you know, to your point, I, I've always, people don't always agree with what I say, but I hope that it, they can at least respect that I'm being honest to, in the things that I say and that I believe. What I, I mean, nowadays, the, the question I get the most now in my, in my, you guys would call it punditry, but you know, I just give my opinion is, do you believe everything you say? And yeah, but I, I also recognize that I'm in the entertainment industry and the way I say stuff is as important as what I say, but absolutely I believe in what I say. And I also, I can take multiple sides on the same issue and I'm still okay with that because I, you know, I grew up in a household that forced me to uh, put myself in other people's shoes, forced me to defend opinions that, I may not, maybe not have thought about forced to defend other opinions and all, do all that kind of stuff. And that's what I love about the, the work that I do right now. So absolutely, that is true. I called them up and I said, mm-hmm. no, you can say that you and Rude Hulett parted ways, but I got fired, my man. And that's what you can say in the press release, because that's what I'm that's what I'm going to say. And I'm and because everybody knows what we're doing anyway. So you're not fooling anybody. And as a matter of fact, it's disingenuous ultimately uh, to do something like that. So, yeah. And uh, and I got fired and it opened up a door and it opened up TV for me. And, you know, here we sit on, uh, you know, May 2023 and I'm about to go to yet another World Cup this summer with the Women's World Cup. And we're getting ready for 2026 and all that. And so I found a way to not even kick a ball anymore, but still be involved in the game and to express my opinion and, uh, you know, to rile people up and to entertain and do all those different things that I love to do. But, you know, I'm still the same guy that was running around in the faux denim and, obviously I don't have uh, the hair that I have back then. I wish I, I wish I could, but you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still the same guy. I like to think. And I'm very jealous. You have a back. I'm sure I was going to ask that, but yeah, I, I was hoping you'd have one. <laughs> yeah. I got all sorts of prototypes and stuff like that. I didn't, you guys, you're going to, you're going to cringe when I tell you, but during my international career, I never traded uh, with anybody I, I would trade with people, but I never kept what was given to me. I gave it to my uh, to our chiropractor for the national team. He's got an incredible collection, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, if you pass on his details, we're, right, uh... <laughs> right. I mean, so I literally after every game, I would trade, and you know, we were we were playing against whoever it was, and a lot of times you know, people wanted to trade with me, which is totally no problem. And 
I would trade, I would get it. And then I would immediately, as I'm going off the field, hand it to him and he would take it and it would be included in, uh, in his collection and stuff like that. But, you know, I was there and, and I, I did that. I probably, if I had to do it over again, I, I, you know, I'd keep some of them. Um, and I do recognize, I mean, hell, if I had to do it over again, I would keep a lot of those faux denim ones that were, uh, that were around now because people like, like you said, they really dig them and it's, uh, it's cool. Now, 2026 is coming and Nike is the sponsor for uh, us soccer, but I would love for Nike. I mean, they're smart people over there to find some way to pay homage. Right. I mean, to just figure it to. out. I know it's Adidas and <laughs> Nike to, and I get it. Whoever you've got to talk to, you to make it happen. <laughs> right? Please come on. I mean, We're just, all praying. <laughs> you, you, you listen, you can make plenty of money, Nike. Don't, don't, don't worry, but you just get together. And for the good of the, not just the country, for the good of the world, do something that everybody is going to celebrate and everybody's going to say that's that's pretty cool and you can give the kudos to adidas for allowing this to happen and nike you can give kudos to uh to adidas for you know the great partnership that you have going forward but uh i don't know you know money's involved and stuff like that but i mean something that iconic you got to you know you got to at least have like i said some sort of homage back to what uh, what existed then no, I get that. I get that. Listen, Alexa, you've, you've given us loads of your time and we do really, really appreciate it. But if it's OK with you, can we just ask one quick fire question each? Yeah, sure. And then we'll let you enjoy your All afternoon. Right. I will answer quickly then. Uh, you can take as long as you want, but we're going to ask you one oh, more okay, question okay, each. Okay. We're going to ask you one more question each, basically. <laughs> right. No problem. No, guys, so, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I got nothing to do. So of all those medals you've won, awards and accolades, what's the one medal that you treasure the most? Which one means the most to you? Uh, well, I mentioned, you know, uh, winning an MLS Cup and and obviously being the first Galaxy team to do it. So from a pure, uh, literally, uh, the, the, you know, the possession of it and that title, you know, that 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 me that is incredibly special to me. But it, I think it, just in general, the most the most special moment of my career has to have been the summer of 94. And, and as I said, you know, walking on our first game was in the Detroit Silverdome. And the Detroit Silverdome no, actually no longer exists. And by the way, that was the first time a World Cup game had been played at an indoor stadium with a roof. Uh, and that's going to change in 2026 uh, uh, from a men's perspective uh, with a bunch of stadiums actually that have roofs. But anyway, you know, I walked on the field there and this is a kid. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in America. I didn't think about playing in World Cups. Uh, that wasn't something that was on my ambition list it just kind of happened and yet i remember looking around and i grew up 10 minutes away from the uh, pontiac silverdome wow. and to walk on that field in that moment and to realize a dream a recent dream but still a dream you know that was pretty cool to be able uh, to be able to do that and there's going to be another kid in a few years now in 26 whether it's a u.s player or somebody else from another country whose life is going to be fundamentally changed because of that summer i love that i love that that power exists. So that's a more general answer as to if you have to look back and at, at different things. So that summer of 94 will never cease to amaze me and my appreciation and, and respect for uh, that opportunity that was given to me that will, you know, knows no bounds. And, but in, individually, obviously winning in uh, an MLS cup and being the first in, in history, because, you know, I'll be an old man. I'll be gone a long time from now. And there will still only be one first LA Galaxy MLS Cup. 
that's that's a great answer i was just looking at the guitars um on the wall behind you as well and i think the summer of 94 would be a great track if you wanted to you know write there we go well. yeah there we, there go. we yeah. go nice i like it we'll definitely do some stuff well i love that answer as well anyway because i i usa 94 will is and will always be my favorite world cup of all time even as an england fan without england being there it's it's actually one of the reasons i love football as much as I do and kits in general because I think the the kits that were at USA 94 were simply the, the best of all time so my question to you is a kit related one I'm going to mm-hmm. kind of ask it on behalf of Tom who isn't recording with us because he's the the fourth member of our podcast okay he like he likes to always ask a bit of a fantasy question and he he always asks our guests what player they would have liked to see play in any kit from any era so you can mix it up but for you you are a player. So I think the question for you has to be, if you could have played in any jersey of all time, what what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Um, okay, so first off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it around. This is for Tom, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question, but I'm going to switch it around too. I would have loved, if, if, you, if the question was, what player that didn't wear the faux denim would you have liked to seen in the faux denim? And I'm going to open it up to the entire world. How awesome would it have been to see, or maybe who knows in the future, who knows what they're, Zlatan wearing the faux denim. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, mother of God, that would have been glorious. <laughs> so I would, I would love to have seen him in, uh, in a faux denim. For me, I mean, look, I know I make fun of you English a lot. Uh, you know, you're out of this guy, but I, I know I make, I make, I know I make fun of you. Where's Tom from, by the way? England. Okay, but where in England? Epsom, near London. Well, that's not even that's not even part of England. I, I, I don't even know if that actually exists. But anyway, I, I'm assuming that he's English too. I know I make fun of you guys a lot, and you know you provide me plenty of content uh, doing that. But um, you guys would probably have to have to help me. So I need a collar, and, and you know the the simple, clean, white, old school England that had the collar. Ah, I mean, just just absolutely beautiful so i would have i would have loved to have if you would have had me i mean you should be so lucky to have played for england back in the day when they had the i don't know when was the last time that they had so i think that's was that that was probably italian 90 the the kit i'm thinking but you got pretty close i mean you scored against england in 92 i mean if you're gonna bring it up i mean you know yeah i mean (laughs) like you know it's not that big a deal but you know when i see Ian Wright, i make sure that he remembers that uh that in that game he didn't score, but I did score. So yeah, we uh, it was fun. That was yeah, nineteen ninety three or something like that, and that was you know the beginning of the end as far as the ninety four World Cup. So we just kind of you know made sure that that wasn't going to going to happen. But yeah, I mean, look, I so yeah, one of those classic types with the uh, with the collar, I think, and even like the shoelace or whatever the the lace up front. I don't know if you, if you guys have any of those. I, I I vaguely remember one of those. I would love to have worn some sort of lace up in the front. I know it probably gets irritating and stuff like that, but just aesthetically, it's just, it looks cool. There would have been a few in Italy when you were there, probably uh, Sampdoria and Roma. There you go, Sampdoria for sure. Absolutely, yes. Balbo, Fonseca. And yeah, at that point, uh, Sampdoria, uh, who was there? Platt was there. Uh, Gazzo was playing at at Lazio. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. I remember when we played Lazio and Gazzo was, uh, was playing for them. I was so excited at one point, you know, he was 
he was messing around with me at one point, he grabbed my uh, goatee at one point, but where we, where we actually had a conversation. I mean, from what I can understand, cause it was, but at least it was English. And I was so starved for anybody that spoke English at the time, even in the moment uh, playing, uh, playing against him that he was making fun of me in English. At least that reminded me a little bit of uh, the English language that at that point I was few and far between when I was having English conversations. Remember your last ever cap for the USA, who it was against? It would have been Scotland and it would have been Mayish of 1998, right before the World Cup. Yeah. yeah. Bonnie Scotland. <laughs> so Scotland's got good, they, they got good ones. They got some good lace ups too. That, that's, a, that's a good one too. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, I mean, France always, they, they, they're always just like class. I mean, I don't know. You guys watched the, the, the World Cup a few months ago. What really stood out to you in terms of, uh, of, uh, of jerseys? Was there one that you proclaimed winner of Qatar? So ironically, we, we, did a, we did a big poll with all our listeners and people that follow us to, to vote what was the number one shirt of the year. And the number one shirt of the year, I think it was on board, came out number one year, was a, was, was a shirt from the World Cup that never actually got worn at the World Cup. And that was, yeah, no, get, work this out. And that was the Mexico away shirt. Really? What do you mean it never got worn? Just because it never, never, they, they, they never wore the away team? Yeah. yeah. Exactly, they only played yeah. three games? Oh my God, really? Yeah. Mexico, else- I mean, again, it's, you know, it's Mexico and I'm loath to say anything about our major rivals, but when it, <laughs> when it's classic with Mexico, there is no other team that's on the field. You know exactly when it happens. And that's really, I want it to be distinctive. I want it, I want it to pop and I want to know that's exactly who it is. I want you to not only lean into it, I want you to own it. And Mexico at times in the past has, uh, has done it. And I get, you know, I get the business behind shirt after shirt after shirt. And now, now it's just like crazy colors. Drives me nuts when you've worked so hard to build your brand relative to a color. And I know you want people to buy stuff, but then I turn the television on and I have no idea who the hell is playing because it's so far off from any cover, color that I would ever associate with you. I don't know. I sound like an old grumpy old man. <laughs> but I, I, I completely agree with you in terms of international shirts. I think we need to embrace what we are. So the Stars and Stripes is America. The Mexicans have the Aztecs. You know, if you ask any Scottish fan, what's your favorite shirt? It's going to be one that's covered in tartan. And right. so, for, so for me, the best shirt of the World Cup was I really loved the Brazil. They had that lightning blue away shirt. And then they had the jaguar pattern on the sleeve in luminous green because it's a an animal native to the country. So that was nice. that won it for me. Nice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. I mean, the Dutch. Right. If if the Dutch are wearing something other than orange or orange, like it doesn't make sense. But I don't know. So my question is: during your club career, who would you have been sitting waiting to call you that you'd have dropped absolutely everything? Which team would you have just? No matter where you were or what you were doing, you would assign for them even to play for free. Um, I, I like big, bold and arrogant things. Right. Uh, so so uh, let's see. So during my career. So do we have to go back then or now? Like what, what, what I would look like now? That's two good questions, isn't it? But no, but yeah, when you are so if anybody had phoned you while you were playing, who would you have just oh, dropped so everything and gone? AC Milan, I would have played for in a second, as would any of I mean, that was back in the heyday and stuff like that. Um, I actually had a trial before the World Cup, so this would have been like in December ish of 92. I had a trial with Arsenal. I'll never forget. Hmm. 
you know, running the steps of Highbury uh, behind Tony Adams because I trained with the team for a number of weeks. Ultimately, it didn't work out. And that was, again, I didn't have, you know, they weren't going to sign me and I didn't I didn't even have, um, you know, work permits and all that kind of stuff. And it was before I had done anything uh, internationally. Yeah, I remember running the steps of Highbury behind Tony Adams. And I remember thinking because he would trip over steps. And if you know his past and everything, who knows what he was doing with that. But but it was just he was clumsy and yet one of the great center backs. And I, I kept I kept running and I was like, how the hell is this guy a freaking legend as a center back? And he can't even get up the steps. I remember that. And then speaking of uh, Ian Wright, I remember when Ian Wright and uh, Ray Parler and Paul Merced would pick me up at the hotel and take me to training. And then we would go and uh, they'd take me to like, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like a, a Bennigan's or, you know, a Chi Cheese or one of these places. And they were infatuated by um, uh, potato skins, you know, tater skins or whatever. They yeah. were like, oh, you got to yeah. have these things. And I remember sitting there drinking beer and eating potato skins with these guys. And they just could not stop talking about uh, the, these things. I, I, I bust Ian Wright's balls every time I see him about uh, about something like that. So that that was my. Uh, that, but look, Arsenal, e- even not for what they are now, but which is which is incredible. But back then in the heyday, my life could have gone a completely different direction had they just uh, signed me at, the, at at that time. But I wasn't. I wasn't good enough, especially for that that Arsenal uh, thing. So those are some things. Um, Real Madrid definitely over Barca, Bayern Munich, uh, those types of uh, big big teams. Uh, I grew up going back and forth between Athens, Greece, and Detroit, Michigan. My dad's Greek, and so when we were young, it was all about. Um, so I'm I love the red team, so I'm Olympiakos. Uh, my brother loved the green team, so he's Panathinaikos, and my dad was always an Ike fan. So he's yellow. So we had all the colors covered there. And I still have pictures of myself, you know, where I'm wearing the red and my brother's wearing the green and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So if, if a team in, uh, in Greece, if I had to pick one, it would be absolutely Olympiakos. Of that. Now, and that would have been Wild West as well back then. Oh, yeah. Imagine being one of those <laughs> green derbies. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that has been so much fun. I mean, we've been looking forward to this you know, ever since you confirmed. I know Mike and Scott particularly have been very, very nervous about it. You know, um, <laughs> oh, you guys, been a lot of fanboy. You guys were fanboy great. Going. And, and listen, before, you know, this, is, this has been wonderful. I, I loved talking to you about this. And, you know, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. And But I love talking to people that have a passion for something. And... I love, first off, that you were incredibly prepared. You didn't need to be, but thank you for for doing that. Um, And that you have a love and a passion. Don't ever, ever lose that. I don't think you apologize for it, and nor should you ever apologize for it. And that you have such an incredible knowledge um, about all of this, all of this kind of stuff. There are many more out there. I'm sure that you have met many of them, maybe that you haven't met. Uh, that are out there that think about the game in the same way that you do and think about the aesthetic and think about, you know, I used the word costume when we started this uh, talk, but that's, that's what it is. And, and I always considered myself a performer. And as I said before, I would put on this costume and then go in front of the audience. And, you know, you, you want to have that reaction and that reaction can happen in the moment, but that reaction can also come later. And a lot of it is the things that you do and the way that you look and it resonates. It resonates for generations. It resonates for decades and decades. And I love the fact that you guys are celebrating that on a continual basis. So 
so well done. And thank you so much. It's been a real uh, pleasure and a real honor to hang out with you guys. Thank you so much for speaking to us. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank cool. you very much. Cool. Well, we'll do it again. 100%. 100%. Definitely. <laughs> we'll have to hold you tight. We'll have to dig out any of the jerseys you do still have, and we'll have a little chat about them. But I, I just want to, yeah, reaffirm what the guys say. Thanks so much. And Adrian is right. We were nervous, but it's not every day you get to, you know, speak to somebody like yourself that you kind of grew up watching on TV and remember sort of like talking to your mates as as a, as a 10 year old in the playground. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's been incredible. Very kind. That's very kind. What are we looking at here in terms of numbers? How many of you guys got? How many, what are we looking at in terms of numbers of jerseys? I, I know you probably have a, oh. you know, a measuring so, contest. Yeah, I think Scott 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 will know exactly mine. I'm somewhere I, I only count when my wife forces me to to prove a point. <laughs> um and I know that I'm somewhere around the six hundred mark. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> so we, we all collect different things. So for me specifically, I collect Wiz shirts. I'm an Aston Villa fan, so I collect Aston Villa shirts, but um I actually specifically collect Bayern Munich shirts as well. So I've got every commercially available Bayern Munich shirt since 1991 through to today so obviously that that adds to a, a bulk of the collection and and yeah I know Scott's somewhere up near the same sort of number as well yeah I'm 526 well get your ass in gear Scott come on yeah, I know yeah. what is more? <laughs> I oh my God. as I said my biggest so I'm a Man U fan so I have I have every single Man U shirt bar two I think since 1992 but yeah, my my biggest collection is definitely so I have I have every like every shirt Beckham wore in his club career. So home, away, wow. third. Oh, I think it amounts to seventy two different shirts. Oh my goodness! But my favorites are the Galaxy. Uh, I just the Americans do. We've spoken about this quite a lot actually, but Americans do jerseys the best, whether it's football or basketball or hockey. But you know, you have the three different variations. You have the the fan then the swingman, and then the authentic slash game. And I just, I'm a killer for all those, de- you know, yeah. I mean, the MLS is just beautiful, isn't it? You've got the, you had the MLS logo, you had the American flag on the other sleeve, you have the, you know, you had the MLS Cup winner's badge, the stars for every high. I just I absolutely love it. Well, we have so many more teams now, too. So it's not just MLS. It's even the other leagues and stuff like that. And, you know, now MLS is kind of the the old traditional type of things in the way that they go about. And some of these some of these other teams, you know, when it comes to USL, NWSL, they can do some even more out there types of things. And, you know, the you know, the Mingos and all all the different teams that we have out there. It's really kind of cool. And it's becoming I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know kind of an an art form and obviously there's commerce behind it but people waiting for the next edition of it and what's it going to be and how much of it is it is going to change i mean all of that stuff is uh is is often awesome but i'm i'm glad that people around the world are appreciating some of the i mean let's be honest this real art that uh, that happens yeah. in terms of the design of uh, of a shirt it doesn't just happen overnight a lot of thought goes into it, and uh, and they are artists that are ultimately coming up with these designs. Yeah, incredible. That's been amazing. <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, thanks a whole lot. All right, be safe over there. I love it. I love Brilliant. it. I love it. Cheers, See you guys. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Wow, I told you it'd be a good one, and hopefully we didn't disappoint. 
Listen, as I said at the outset, we will be back next week. And as usual, we'll have all of our usual great stuff. We'll have all the news, all of the many, many kit releases we're seeing at the moment. We'll have a brilliant feature, a bit of history and Scotty rants. In the meantime, everybody have a brilliant week. And if you did like the show, please do take the time to share it and give us some feedback wherever it is you listen to it.